Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Zassini, represented by The Athletic. The legend, Mo DeKeel, is in the building. We're going to talk about everything that's happened in the NBA over the course of the last week and preview the eight playoff series that are about to get started here in about an hour and a half from when we tip off uh, this podcast. So uh, the first thing we do want to talk about is going to be Vladi Divots, and then we're going to move into the Blazers Grizzlies. Then we'll talk about uh, the playoff series from there. So Mo, it's a hot one in LA today. I know you're feeling it like myself. How you doing, man? <laughs> I'm cooking. I'm actually, the funny thing is the uh, the air conditioning unit in my office has been broken for several years, so I'm in the okay. hottest, hottest part of the house <laughs> Dude, recording no. the pod. It's okay. It's okay. I like to consider it a sauna. I'm podcasting <laughs> while having a sauna, so <laughs> I'm ready oh. to roll. <laughs> Dude, I'm in like kind of a similar boat right now. We live on like a fifth floor of an apartment built or apartment complex, and we don't have central air in this apartment complex, but we have a unit in our bedroom, which is where I've been podcasting since the pandemic has hit. Uh, but it's so loud. You guys might have heard it uh, during the first part of, I think it was the Freddie Gillespie interview or the Skylar Mays interview or something. It just blares the whole time. And like, it's like you can't even hear the people talking because it's so loud. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something. So uh, yeah, I'm uh I'm ready to roll as soon as this. I've stopped working out of my office for the most part <laughs> during the <laughs> pandemic and, and worked out of my bedroom. But uh, uh, <laughs> but this is the best place to get the uh, podcast sound. So I I sacrifice for every podcast I'm on, Sam. <laughs> oh my god! So let's uh, let's jump in. Let's talk about Vladi Divac deciding to resign. Uh, it's pretty clearly not a resignation. Uh, I know that the statement is that he chose to resign but the kings are paying him out through 2023 uh it seems very clear that the organization decided to move in a different direction with joe dumars taking charge of the basketball operations department this is something that's like kind of been building for a year it feels like since dumars got there Uh, it seems like dumars has gotten the ear of the ownership uh in sacramento and that's kind of how this whole thing has worked i will say before we get to dumars i think that Overall, his track record gets maligned a little bit unfairly. He did build an NBA title team. Uh, The last, you know, maybe four or five years were pretty bad in Detroit. But I think that he is definitely deserving of a second chance. Uh, And I'm intrigued to see where Sacramento goes as it builds out its front office. As uh, it seems, Joe Dumars is going to be the leader in uh, in the pack here. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the the funny thing, too, though, is, like, I don't feel like Sacramento's that far away. I just feel like they've mismanaged a few things, right? They're going to get killed forever for Bagley over Luka. Yep. You know, and that's, and that's going to stay with Vlade for a very long time. I don't I don't see him getting another opportunity to, to run a team, in all honesty. And then the other thing, too, is they've just never found the coach that they've felt comfortable with, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know. And I think it's going to be tough to figure out how this all goes. But, you know, you said it, you know, Joe Dumars has built a championship team. Now this was a while ago. It was almost 20 years ago at this point, but he's got a He's got a track record there and it's something to keep an eye on. I'm going to be interested. Really the first thing I'm going to watch for Sam with this team is, you know, what are they going to do with Bagdanovich's restricted yep. free agency now? Cause that's the first real test. I think he's a key piece for this team, but I know a lot of teams are going to want to take a, a shot at him. I don't know how much the finances change with 
with all the, the CBA and cap and all that stuff, you're going to have to get a smarter guy on the podcast for that. But it's that's the first test for me. That's the first thing I want to watch and see how, how he handles that and then how they go from there. So let's let's talk Vladi first and then talk about the future. So Vladi, when Vladi got there, I think it was pretty clear that he was pretty woefully unprepared for everything that goes into being a general manager, right? Like the trade that proves that above all is the pick swap deal with yeah. the Philadelphia 76ers where Sam Hinkie just like totally took him for a ride, right? Vladi also got better as a GM. I don't think he was ever quite at the level that we see across the league. Like he was pretty clearly a top, like a bottom five GM in the league in all likelihood. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that I know the intricacies of every single uh, general manager in front office, but I think it's pretty fair to say that Vladi was likely in the top five now or in the bottom five. I'm sorry. Now it's also worth noting that he got better. Like the De'Aaron Fox pick was good. Getting Buddy healed in the way that the DeMarcus Cousins trade worked out was pretty good. Like there, there are things that he has done that, ended up being very, very positive and have put this organization in an interesting direction going forward. The problem is kind of similarly to what you said, though. The mistakes were just too big. And I look at two big ones. You know, you mentioned Luka Doncic. Uh, to me, it was indefensible at the time to take Marvin Bagley over Luka Doncic. I had Marvin Bagley at three. I wasn't one of those, like, Marvin Bagley haters either. Right. Like, I just did not see there being a case where you can take Marvin Bagley over Luka Doncic. The guy was the fucking MVP of EuroLeague by the time <laughs> he was 18 years old. It's the amount of talent that Luka Doncic has is just unbelievable. And there was no circumstance where he wasn't at least going to be a good NBA player. Now, and then it seems like it was just a very clear misevaluation of what Marvin Bagley's skills were, given the fact that Vladi Divac said that they think he could play small forward. After selecting right. him like that was never in the cards for Bagley. He was always closer to being a five than a three. I think his best minutes are going to come at the five long term. I still think Marvin Bagley is going to be fine long term, to be honest. But the problem is that Luka Doncic is going to be a perennial MVP candidate. The second issue here, and I think this is what ultimately caused the downfall of Vladi, not more than the Luka Doncic pick, but it was more immediate and more recent than it. I think firing Dave Yeager was a significantly bad decision and replacing him with Luke Walton was a significantly bad decision. Uh, this team played really hard under Yeager. Yeager seemed to really understand uh, how Vivek Ranadive wanted to play. He embraced playing up-tempo. He embraced playing to his players' strengths. Like, uh in Memphis, he was a grinded-out coach, right? Like, this is a guy who uh, cut his teeth with the grit-and-grind Grizzlies, and then he gets to Sacramento, he has De'Aaron Fox, he has all these guards, and he starts playing up-tempo. I think that that's credit to Jaeger, and I think it's uh, in stark contrast to what we saw from Luke Walton this year, who was, frankly, I think, probably the worst coach in the NBA this year. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say that I know everything that goes on in the room again, but... The way that they utilized De'Aaron Fox and the way that they slowed down the tempo throughout the course of the year, I think was pretty unforgivable. And it's pretty stunning to me that they're not going to look to fire uh, Luke Walton, seemingly, according to reporting from our Sam Amick here at The Athletic. Yeah, it, it, one, 
Boylan was the worst coach in the NBA this year. I'll fight you on that. <laughs> so I will. I, I'm dead serious on this. I, I, Jim Boylan he at least got them to play really hard on defense. Like they had an identity. The Kings didn't have an identity this year. They just had more talent than the Bulls did. Yeah, no, but the I, I don't feel like the outward disgust that the the Bulls young players showed yeah, on occasion is, is, <laughs> is anything else Luke did. <laughs> By the way, like Buddy Heald has shown outward disgust for uh, Luke Walton, seemingly. Uh, so it's like, by the way, you're 100% right. Like, we can parse Jim Boylan and Luke Walton, but that's the conversation that Luke Walton was in this year. Jim yeah. Boylan, who just got fired rightfully. Yeah, that's 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 one thing. And you're right in that sense of, like, you know, you want to create stability. And I was surprised when they fired Jaeger. I know there was issues between the front office and him and, and things like that, but he got them going in the right direction. And it was just the Kings being the Kings, you know, and, and it, it, it was more of the, we're not going to build continuity. Let's just come in with a new coach. And, you know, it was interesting because Walton was an interesting choice coming off of his, his time with the Lakers. It, 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 it felt kind of rushed. I just didn't, buy into it. I think this is one of those instances where I think everybody felt like, yeah, Vlade is not long for this job. Like nobody was expecting him to really kind of survive for as long as he did. Uh, across the board, it's just like you can't survive all these mistakes constantly. You can't keep turning it over and turning it over. And that's why I also think I'm not sure I would necessarily fire Luke Walton after one year, Sam. And it's just because yeah. Sometimes it takes a year to figure it out. And I, what I mean is figure your players, figure out your what works best and things like that. Yes, he should have been running a much faster uh, offense and, and more up-tempo and going with that. But there were times where also De'Aaron Fox was out of, you know, yep. injured and things like that, and that kind of plays a caveat into it. And they played I, hard at the end of the year too. Like they, yeah. before the stoppage, they were pretty good. Yeah, and there was like, you know, there was a small upswelling of like, hey, keep an eye on Sacramento during that, that run before the – before the stoppage of play. And I think, you know, he doesn't get enough credit for, you know, and, and this is where Buddy was kind of disgusted a bit, but he doesn't get enough credit going like, no, we're going to bring Buddy off the bench. And I think that's actually the perfect role for Buddy Heald, whether he he likes it or not, it's a whole different story. But I think that, you know, that was a move he made that some coaches we think are slow to make those kinds of moves. I think he, he's willing to do that stuff. I'm not in full defense of Luke Wall, and I just think time should be given to him, but it's just something I don't think Sacramento does. You know, they just don't give enough time to let these things play out. Yeah, I think that what it's going to come down to now, though, is like if the decision is Buddy Heald or Luke Walton in stability, like I'm definitely picking Buddy Heald. And like this isn't even to say that I think Buddy is like an incredible basketball player. I think he's a good starter in the NBA. But like I, I think that we haven't seen anything positive from Luke, and this goes back to his time with the Lakers. We at least know that Buddy is like a useful piece. Yeah, and I think, you know, well, well, this is where the whole Bogdanovich decision will play into things, right? Like, yeah. now we're going to find out. They just, their hand might be forced, and, and they might lose Bogdanovich, and they they going to end up starting Buddy, and that's going to be a, a different scenario. You know, it. we'll see how it is. And we we both know, too, though, when the GM who brought you in is leaving and a new one comes in, you, you, you know the days are numbered. It's just yeah. factual. Like, you know, if... Right now, Joe Dumars is is listed as the interim. We know that's probably, 
my feel for it is it's he's going to turn into the guy, and it means he's going to make the decision on who the next coach is. And I think that's one of those things that there's going to be pressure on Luke to perform early next year, whenever next year is. Uh, and if he doesn't, I think he'll find himself on the the hot seat or looking for a new job pretty quick. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right on that. Uh, the Bogdanovich thing, and we'll we'll close on this. Uh, with the Kings. The Bogdanovich thing is very interesting to me, if only because I think he's going to have very real sign and trade value in this marketplace where there is really not much in terms of optionality out there for contending teams to get better. There aren't like really a ton of stars out on the trade market right now, and there isn't a heavy free agency class. If I was the Kings, I would rather try and get like, like if I was the Bucks. I would pretty happily give up that number 24, uh, seemingly what's going to be the number 24 overall pick from Indiana, uh, along with like salary filler for Bogdanovich. Yeah, that that'd be interesting. I wonder if they <clears throat> that'd be interesting. I wonder if they might even get better offers than that. Like, yeah, you know better than me. This is a, a pretty weak draft from my understanding. So, no, you know, you, you, finding somebody at 24, you know, and and filler for somebody as useful as Bogdanovich, and I'm a Big Bagdanovich. I, I, I love the kid. Um, I think, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting. I think they might get better offers in that regard. I, him and him in Milwaukee, though, would be a ton of fun, too. Yeah, like if I'm Milwaukee, like you could do something like Ilyasova and DJ Wilson, plus that number 24 overall pick. DJ Wilson's like kind of interesting to me still, even though Milwaukee won't play him. Yeah, no, it'll be, it'd be, it'll be something worth uh, exploring. So it's going to be a fun, uh, well, we're going to have a fun playoffs, hopefully, and then, and then we'll get the uh, fun uh, offseason at some point. But it'll be really interesting to see how the whole Bogdanovich story plays out. All right, let's let's uh, let's talk Grizzlies-Blazers before we get into these playoff previews here, and we'll transition directly from Grizzlies-Blazers into Lakers-Blazers. Uh, obviously, the Blazers win that game uh, against the Grizzlies, the play-in, in order to move on to a playoff series against the Lakers. There are a couple of... General concerns I have that we'll talk about that showcase themselves in the, or showcase themselves in this game against the Grizzlies, but the Blazers look very dangerous offensively at least. Damian Lillard looks incredible. Yusuf Nurkic's addition I think went a little bit under the radar somehow, even though Blazers fans were telling us how important Yusuf Nurkic is to this team. His ability to both be a short roll threat, a post up threat, uh, he's improved as a three point shooter to where you at least like you can't leave him totally alone out there or else he's gonna potentially knock down a shot from distance. He's just an incredible safety valve whenever teams blitz Damian Lillard to where it's really, really hard to deal with the Blazers offensively. And I think that that's what the seeding games and that's what this play-in game against the Grizzlies showed, that Yusuf Nurkic, Damian Lillard, C.J. McCollum, uh, this is an incredible offense that is very, very real and is going to be difficult for anyone to deal with. I mean, he raises their ceiling offensively. You know, it's yeah. it's his passing too. Like they're yeah. able to run a couple different sets. They can just give it to him at the elbow, at the top of the key, and you know let their guards run off screens and things like that, or back cut and stuff. Like he can make those passes, and that opens things up. That's the stuff they were missing all year. They didn't have from Whiteside. That's not something that Zach Collins really brings. And I think that opens up all sorts of cutting actions that they can bring in and that allows Terry Stotts to be able to to add more variety to their offense whereas before it was just like Damon CJ go cook 
you know, pick and roll and go. And now, you know, off the pick and roll, like you said, you blitz, you're going to hit Yusuf Nurkic in the, on the short roll, and he can make plays out of that, whether it's him scoring or whether it's him finding a shooter or Zach Collins or Whiteside in the dunker spot and him finding them for, for lob dunks and, and opportunities there. So I think he just raises that ceiling. And I think the other side of it, too, is, and this is the underrated part of his game, he's a pretty damn good defender, too. You know, he he does yeah. a good job on the defensive end. I think he's he he allows them to have a, a solid scheme. He does a good job rotating over. He's not going to be the shot blocker that Whiteside is, but he's also not going to chase blocks the way Whiteside does at times. Yeah. I mean, he had a 2020 game, you know, in, in, in this playing game, and I think it was massive. And, you know, all the other games before, like, Yo, he just plays hard. He dives on the floor every yep. other play, it feels like. You know, it's just who he is. And, and and I think it really just takes them to to another level. Fully healthy all year, I think they're they're a different team. They're not an eight seed. No, I agree with you. Yusuf Nurkic, he was a warrior on Saturday, man. Like, that guy went out and played 40 minutes. Yeah. Like, it was unbelievable. He was a stud. And, and I don't think people realize, too, he hasn't played an entire year, basically. Right. You know, he's set out. I mean, the, the stoppage and everything slowed his return. He was going to come back that March. And so now he's been out, you know, a, a year plus. Like, that, that takes a while. And the stamina it takes to really build all of that back up. It's not something you just get in eight playing games, you know, or uh, eight seeding games in a playing game. Like, it takes a, a couple, a month or two to really get that fully going. And you saw it at times, man. He looked gas at moments in that game. Yep, especially late. He he was not uh, he was not at his full strength late in that game. And I think that you brought up a really big key with Nurkic. His defensive value uh, is really impressive because he has that short area quickness uh, within their drop coverage scheme to be able to like wall off, but to also be able to like drop his hips and backtrack. Like they, the big thing that I think went underrated with John Morant this year is his floater game kind of allowed him to be an incredible offensive weapon even though he didn't have the jump shot, especially early in that game. And uh, before Whiteside came in and the Grizzlies started to go up tempo and uh, before Zach Collins got hurt and they started using Morant more in like second side options uh, where Nurkic wasn't necessarily the guy defending the pick and roll. They got Wenyan Gabriel involved in those a bunch. Mm -hmm. Nurkic's ability to play high while still maintaining the ability to drop his hips and contest without fouling at the rim is really, really impressive within that scheme. And I think it's really important, especially in contrast to whenever you see Whiteside out there. Because when Hassan Whiteside was out there, they just straight up ran at Whiteside every single fucking play. Every single time down the court, they involved Whiteside in a pick and roll. Or they had Brandon Clark space out to the corner three-point line and involved Whiteside in a help side decision, right, where he would either yeah. help from the same side or they would get John Morant on Nyland against someone like a Wenyan Gabriel or someone like a Yusuf Nurkic where if you give him space all the way out, he does still need some help to be able to defend that. So it was really, really, really impressive to me how Nurkic was able to deal with it. It was really impressive to me how Taylor Jenkins adjusted to be able to get Nurkic away from those actions. And it was really, really telling to me how important Zach Collins is to this team. Because in the first half, when Collins was on the court, they were actually a good defense. I know that Collins only played seven or eight minutes. He can't really move, it seems like, right now. I think he's dealing with some sort of, uh, it's like a leg injury or a foot yeah, injury or something. I haven't, I haven't read it fully 
seen it, but yeah, he has some sort of foot injury, I think. Yeah. So even when he's not moving at full capacity out there, even if he's at 50%, he just knows where he needs to be defensively in a way that Whiteside doesn't. And in a way that Gabriel is still learning, like when he Gabriel has the tools to be a good help side defender, but he was pretty consistent, especially early in that second half arriving late. If Zach Collins was playing in this series, I kind of think the Blazers and like, if he does play and plays 25 to 30 minutes a night in the series and can do it at 90% of what he's capable of. I kind of think the Blazers could cause some interesting problems for the Lakers, but without Collins, I mean that like LeBron Anthony Davis pick and roll is just going to be a nightmare for the Blazers to deal with. I don't think they really have a shot to defend it. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we talk about, when we talk about guys being injured or not being able to play or, or, or finish out a game like Collins in this situation, it isn't so nothing not necessarily just what they bring to the floor. It's just, you know, who they have replacing it. You know, sometimes yeah. it's just they just don't have the depth and, and can't really go that far. So it was interesting seeing Gabriel have to play. You know, it took me a minute to even just, who is this uh, right. kind of thing. And, and it, it's just a, a tough scenario. And it's tough for him to, to jump right in. in in the biggest game of the season for the Blazers. You right. know, it wasn't like he played a ton during the eight games before. And then it's like, okay, now you got to jump in and, and succeed and, 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 and really help. So, you know, it's a tough spot to be in in terms of their depth and, and, and what that means for the, the team. And, and like you said, going forward against the, the Lakers, it's going to make a – it's going to matter come, come up against that pick and roll. Yeah, no, totally agree. Uh, do you have any strong thoughts – other than that, on the Lakers series, uh, the offense to me. By the way, full credit to the Grizzlies in this game. Yeah, I, they really to, I wanted to give I wanted to give Grizzlies a little bit of love. Uh, yeah. You know, John Morant with his career high game that actually probably won't count because it doesn't count in the regular season stats. I don't know how they're doing. Yeah, that. I don't know how they're going to do that either. They're it, handling it very strange. But he was a beast, you know, and and down the stretch too. Like he was attacking, he was all over the place. It was a great thing to watch this rookie, you know, this young kid, nineteen, twenty years old, really step up in this moment. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough, and you know they had the injuries. I think it's a different game with uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. if he's out there and things like that. But he's he's showing you the stuff he can do, and you know if he develops that shot, it's going to be a real problem around the league for years to come but he was taken over down the stretch Sam in ways that I was like wow this is impressive yeah totally agree uh they started to play more to what made them successful throughout the year they started to play a bit more up tempo I thought early in the game they were slow uh in a way that they typically are not that slow uh in how they play uh it seemed like they got Jonas Valanciunas involved against Sam Whiteside in the early second quarter, which was super smart on Taylor Jenkins' part. Uh, they started to play more up-tempo in the third quarter and especially early in the fourth quarter uh, to allow John Morant to take over uh, that game. The Blazers let John Morant get going uh, in yep. that game or in the in transition and on the early uh, early secondary offense, right? Like they really started to get moving in a way uh, – that was very impressive to me. And John Morant took full advantage of the poorest help side defense that was there whenever Gabriel Nurkic or Gabriel and Whiteside or Nurkic and Whiteside or whoever was on the court. I think the Blazers have real problems whenever Whiteside is on the court. Like I, I just don't see any way that they can play him 
real minutes uh, unless they have to because Zach Collins is out. Like, I would rather play Zach Collins and Wenyan Gabriel at the five than put uh, put Hassan Whiteside on the court right now. Well, I think you can – the thing about Whiteside for me is it's in spurts. I don't want him right. playing heavy minutes. I think Whiteside can be productive in a five-minute spurt, you know, right. and, and let's go. And and it's it's that kind of area. And I think there were moments – even in the eight games, you know, where where he showed like, okay, this is where I can play. But there are times where it's like, man, he's killing you. And it's, you gotta, it's one of those things the coaching staff has to be on top of when they put him in recognizing right away. Okay. He's beginning to fade. And it's not an energy thing. It's just, you know, it's just not there. I think in spurts, he gives you good, he can give you good minutes and he can, he can eat up some stuff here and he can, you know, his, his ability to block shots matters. You know, and it, and it makes a difference, and I think that's something you you want to have on the court. But again, small sport spurts, and for you know, just at maximum. Like if he's playing 20 minutes a game, I'm good. If he's playing more than that, I'm I'm panicked. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that. Uh, and then final stuff on the Grizzlies here. I think that they probably win that game with Jaron Jackson. Uh, his spacing would have been so critical to everything that they were doing in that first half. Uh, they probably would have been winning in that first half. They just really struggled to get anything going offensively, especially in that first quarter. Yeah, and I think the the honest truth to me is they win a second game if this if they win that first one. I just don't think the Blazers yep. had any gas after that. I, I texted a friend privately, going, "Hey, he's a Blazers fan." I said, hey, "Your your team has to win this game because they're not winning on Sunday." <laughs> Yeah, no, I totally agree. And then CJ took over in a way that was really good to see because CJ is ailing right now, I think is the fair way to put it. Uh, All right, the Lakers, before we get into an ad here from DraftKings, are you worried at all about the Lakers' offense? Because I'm not really all that considered. I'm not. I think, you know, some of it was – uh, Vogel trying to experiment a bit, especially once Rondo went down. He wanted to give guys chances and see what he has. This isn't that crazy of a, a drop that we've seen before in regular seasons in the last 10 games when a team has seating locked up, is resting guys, seeing what goes on and things like that. A little bit worried about Danny Green's shooting. I, you know, He, he kind of needs to snap out of it. He can go on long cold streaks. Just ask any San Antonio's fan. Um, but I think overall, I'm not too worried but the one thing I think Sam is this is a team that does need a tough first round series to kind of just wake them up I think that's the the ultimate thing I don't know how tough of a series this will be but they need a a, a challenge and I think this is a playing Portland as, as much as everybody's like this is the last team you you want to see and I agree also gives them a, a, a little bit of an edge of like okay we got to get going now yeah no doubt uh, I think that that's absolutely accurate. They could use a little wake up. Anything that you see in terms of shot quality uh, that they're getting out of their offense says that they're in the top five in the bubble so far. They're just not making shots. And you're right that Danny Green can go into prolonged slumps. You're right. They've actually gotten good shooting from Kyle Kuzma so far. So what happens whenever Kuzma uh, or if Kuzma turns back into being the shooter we've seen throughout the course of his career, I think he's actually made some pretty structural changes to his jumper to where he's getting a wider base. He's taking a bit more of a set shot. Uh, I think that some of what Kuzma's shooting uh, mechanic adjustments have been so far are actually replicable over time. But what happens if they go away from him because they're relatively new in the playoffs? Like what happens with the Lakers then? I get all of that. I think that Frank Vogel is going to have to be a little bit more willing to go small. 
than what we've seen so far in his time with the Lakers. But I'm not real concerned. I don't think the Blazers have nearly enough on defense to be able to slow down uh, the Lakers, unfortunately. I just don't think they also have much in the way of gas. You know, look at – let me put it to you this way. Those eight games were stressful for me, and I had nothing to gain one way or the other, you know, in that scenario. You know, every game they played was down to the wire, meant something. They played eight game sevens. Nine, actually, with with the play-in. You know, they they needed to go all out. And to their credit, they did. I just don't know what's left in the tank there. Because, you know, Lillard looks tired at times. You know, CJ battling the... The, the back issue, I think all that, like we said, Nurkic still working his way into form. You know, if I'm the Lakers, I'm doing things like trying to pressure Dame. I'm trying to pick him up full court at times. I'm trying to go up tempo and run up and down the court and, and try to wear these guys out. Like, I think this is uh, challenging in that sense for the Blazers just because I just don't think they have any energy. And we haven't even talked about the mental and emotional energy it takes to kind of get up for this. Yeah, I agree with that. I'll, I'll be really interested to see what they have to give tomorrow uh, whenever they play the Lakers. Be, but today, the kick, playoffs kick off. Uh, <laughs> the regular season's fun and all, but only one thing can compare to the excitement of the playoffs, and that is DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. Both basketball and hockey have entered their respective playoffs, and DraftKings is putting you in the center of the action. With millions in prizes throughout the week, there's no better place to make it rain. Start playing for free with your first deposit today if you haven't tried it yet daily fantasy sports are easy to play just draft your players stay under the salary cap and pile up points based off of your players performance there's no better way to put your sports knowledge to the test than to compete for millions of dollars in prizes throughout the week but if daily fantasy isn't for you DraftKings just launched best ball contests for football season if you aren't familiar with best ball simply head over to the app and check it out now Look, I'm a big DraftKings guy. I use it every day. I played fantasy baseball. I put four lineups in yesterday. I've put in my NBA lineups today. I've got a Clippers stack. Uh, I've got a Raptors stack entered in. I'm ready to go. Download the DraftKings app and use promo code RUN to play free with your first deposit today. Compete for millions of dollars in total prizes up for grabs this week. That's promo code RUN to get a shot at millions of dollars in prizes all week. Only at DraftKings, minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Mo, man, I got to tell you, I'm not saying I'm addicted to daily fantasy, but it's, uh, <laughs> but you I, I'm, are in, addicted. <laughs> I'm in every day, man, I got to tell you. I'm not saying I'm an addict. I just can't stop using it. That's right. That's, I, I'm, I'm in. We are we are big fans of DraftKings here at the Game Theory Podcast. Let's uh, let's talk quickly about Milwaukee and Orlando. I am not all that interested in this series. <laughs> I feel bad. Like I would like to care about it, but fuck, man, it's tough. It's, 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 no, I'll, I'll just run through it to you very quickly. It would have been more interesting. Had Jonathan Isaac's been healthy, had yep. you, you know, I think Mo Bamba's left the bubble. Yeah, yeah. Correct has. me if I'm wrong with that. Yeah. So like you know, there's there would have been interesting things there, but ultimately the things that can hurt Milwaukee, Orlando doesn't do. You know, and and that's just kind of it. It's not it's not an exciting series. It's the it's the one where I'm going to watch the first half. It's going to be a blowout. I'm going to have it on, but I'm going to go do other things because there's eight games on a day, it feels like, during, the, during these playoffs. So, uh, 
you know, it's going to be that kind of series. It's if it should be the NBA TV series. <laughs> uh, I think that it probably will be. I know that uh, Bucks fans were kind of disappointed by the schedule that got released because all of their games basically are during the day as opposed to it being, uh, you know, showcasing the number one team in the NBA during prime time and all that stuff. And I think there's merit to that. But, yeah, this, this series is just not going to be interesting. I, I don't just, think. And, and, and it's not a shot at the the Magic. You know, they, they don't have the offensive firepower. They're, the, the most impressive piece that they had was Isaacs, and he's out. So it's not – it's just it is what it is, you know. And, and credit to them for making the playoffs. I think Steve Clifford's a great coach. I just don't think it's going to be that exciting. I just don't think they can take advantage of the Bucks the way uh, other teams will be able to later in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, like, John Isaac is out. Aaron Gordon, you know, has some sort of hamstring injury, apparently. He missed uh, their last game in the bubble on Thursday. Uh, Yvonne Fournier missed their game on Thursday with an illness, so I would assume he'll be fine. Uh, Michael Carter-Williams has a foot injury. Uh, Terrence Ross uh, missed the game on Thursday. Alfred Camino's out, obviously. Some of these guys will probably play in this game, but I don't even know that like the guys that they're going to have out on the court are full strength other than Nikola Vucevic and Markel Fultz. So, man, I don't know. This is, uh, like you said, they just don't have the offensive firepower. Uh, they were 23rd in the league in offense. They were 10th in defense, but uh, when you're missing Jonathan Isaac, who played half the season this year, uh, your defense is not going to be the 10th best defense in the league. Yeah, we, we should move on. <laughs> It's it's a bummer. Like I, I really, I, I'm excited to talk about Milwaukee throughout the playoffs. I'm excited to talk about, um, you know, some of the issues that they could potentially be posed by uh, a Miami, for instance, if that playoff series comes to fruition. Like the first half of that game and the seeding games was interesting before right. Milwaukee just turned on the Jets and just blew them out in the second half. But you know what? I don't know that we need to talk about it all that much. Like this is this is not going to be a game that, or a series that is all that competitive. I'd be stunned if it goes past five games. I mean, this is the typical one eight yeah. kind of thing for for most part. So I just think good on Orlando making the playoffs. It's going to be uh, lucky for them. It's going to be a short bus ride home. Let's talk about the Clippers in Dallas. I, I kind of thought that Dallas had a real shot to be dangerous uh, in a playoff series because their offense is so good. I really don't like this matchup against the Clippers, though. Uh, the Clippers have too many different guys that they can throw at Luka Doncic. They can slow him down. Like, you can throw Paul George on him on the ball, and George is so good at dealing with those pick-and-roll exchanges and those dribble handoffs and just getting his hands in there and being disruptive that it's going to cause uh, – more energy exertion throughout the course of a seven-game series against Luka Doncic than what you'd like to see Dallas have to expend. Uh, I'm intrigued by Christophs Porzingis going against this defensive scheme because I think that he can do a pretty good job of taking advantage by spacing the floor and uh, creating opportunities for himself. I would expect he's going to average you know, 25 points a night in this series probably, but yeah, I, I just don't see any way that Dallas can defend uh, the shot creators that the Clippers have. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the fun thing about Dallas is they have the historically high offensive rating, almost at 116 now. Um, you know, but when they've played the Clippers in their three games, that rating drops to 106. Yeah. You know, and, and that's just something that the Clippers are able to really attack them defensively. Everything you said, you know, attacking Doncic, you can throw 
you can put Beverly having him picking him up full court, and then you know whenever you set a screen and switch on to him, you know you you can have interesting matchup scenarios. I can see places where they're going to put Paul George on Kristaps Porzingis and have you know Zubac guarding Dorian Finney-Smith. Like it's not that big of a a thing for them. That way they can switch the screen, and now you have Luka Doncic on on uh, uh, Paul George, and that's a challenge. You know, and on top of that, you have Kawhi floating around there. I think there's just so many different ways the Clippers can attack the Mavs offense that it makes it difficult. And I think that's just a challenge across the board. And then they just, they can't guard Kawhi and PG like at the other end. Like that's just their issues there. And and I think that's something that's, you got to be worried about if you're a, a uh, Mavs fan. Like it's just one of those things. It's, you know, look, they just don't have the guys. I think smart thing maybe is put Maxi Kleba in early to guard Kawhi and see how he handles it. I think Kleba's done a pretty good job. You continue to spread the floor offensively. But ultimately, this is just going to be a tough, tough series. I've seen some people thinking it's going to be a long series. I don't think so. I think the Clippers are just going to be able to get whatever they want offensively. And as long as they're making shots, they're going to be in a good position. Yeah, I think the first game in this series is going to be pretty telling. It's tonight. Uh, we're going to learn about how together the Clippers are because that's been kind of the concern, right, mm-hmm. is uh, they haven't played a ton together in the seeding games. They haven't gotten a chance to play a ton together in the bubble. Montrezl Harrell is probably going to play his first game uh, tonight. It seems like he's going to play. I, I would think that's going to happen. Whether or not he does, uh, I guess, remains up for debate. But Lou Williams missed some time. Patrick Beverly missed some time. You know, they haven't gotten a good run of it yet. If they come out and just, like, blow the doors off the Clippers, I think this might be a four- or five-game series. Or blow the doors off the Mavericks, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I actually don't think they'll play Harrell. Uh, I know he got cleared, but he missed a ton of time. You know, we don't know his conditioning's at. We don't know where he's at. uh mentally where he's feeling and and all that stuff like I think it'd be a very tough spot to put him in right off the bat you know this is his first day out of uh the quarantine and 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 that's a tough scenario I think there are things that do play in the Mavs favor I did kind of forget Beverly is out with a calf strain so that's going to be interesting and that's when you touched on the Clippers togetherness that's the biggest question mark for me this team has not been able to have their entire squad all year long. And I think ultimately that causes an issue come chemistry time. And that really plays out in playoffs. I just, again, I just don't know if Dallas can stress them to the point where that re- the, the cracks really begin to show all that much. There'll be moments, and, and Luka's going to have a game. I don't know if, I don't think this is going to be a sweep. Luka's going to have a game that's crazy, and it's going to be paired up with Porzingis shooting the piss out of the ball. But it's, it's, but I just don't think it's going to be to the point where the Clippers are going to be in crazy worried. Yeah, I think that that's probably right. Let's move to the other 2-7 matchup. Unfortunately, this is not a series I am particularly <laughs> interested in. Either. It gets better, folks. It gets better. We get better playoff series. Don't worry. <laughs> we do. Uh, Toronto uh, did jump the Lakers in terms of record because they played the extra game. They're 53-19 and 19 this year. They're playing a Nets team that was feistier than what was anticipated in the bubble. I think we can say that and not be lying, right? Yep. Now, yeah, think- the, pro- <laughs> the problem is that they're playing against what I think is probably the best defense in the bubble uh, in Toronto. I think that 
maybe the better way to put it is the best playoff defense in the bubble because I think that because of the different types of versatile lineups that Toronto can put on the court versus just the battering hammer that is Milwaukee, Milwaukee's defense, right? And the questions that some people have internally uh, about the Clippers, or uh, I don't mean internally within their organization, I mean uh, on the interior of their defense with whether or not you can keep Avita Zubats on the floor and what happens when you have to play Montrezl Harrell as a rim protector, even though he's been a little bit better this year. I think that the Raptors defense is probably the best in the bubble. And I would anticipate that they just kind of put Brooklyn in a stranglehold the whole series. I mean, it's not probably to me. They're, they, they've been the best defense in the bubble, hands down, you know, uh, minus that game. They got blown out by Boston. I just think their, their, their defense is phenomenal. I think Nick nurse is like, I just want to go watch their training camp to be honest. They they won't let me. I'm a member of the media. They won't let me in. Uh, But I just want to watch and and watch him kind of put this all together because sometimes he just throws things out there where I don't think they've practiced at all. And the (laughs) defensive IQ of those guys is phenomenal. You know, from from Kyle Lowry, Fred Van Vliet, uh, Siakam, uh, Marcus Gasol, Serge Ibaka, you know, on down. Like, they're just – the, the level of IQ there, it's like he can just throw stuff at them and they'll pick it up right away. They might have some mistakes here and there, but like quicker than most teams, they'll be able to, to react to it. And I just think it's going to be suffocating. And when you look at the net, you know, they've been very feisty throughout their eight games. I mean, hell, they had they went no five and reason. Three. Yeah, and they had no reason to go as hard as they did in that Portland game you know, last game of the season. Mm -hmm. But they tried to take it, and they came a shot away from that. And, you know, I think Harris LeVert is showing really immense value. I don't know if that carries over to the – Can we talk (laughs) about Karras? Because I think Karras is a stud. I think he is an absolute stud. He, I get that there are concerns about the way that he's going to fit with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving next year. I totally understand that, given the fact that he likes to have the ball in his hands just as much as Kyrie likes to have the ball in his hands, just as much as Kevin Durant likes to have the ball in his hands. But, man, you need three creators to win a title now. You just do. If you can have two of those guys on the court for every minute of a game next year, that's an enormous win. Like, I totally get that. And, like, his contract, it's a three-year deal where he's making under $20 million a year. That's, like, one of the best contracts in the NBA, I think. And every single time that he's been thrust into a lead role or thrust into a playoff scenario or thrust into must-win scenarios, the guy's performed. He was dominant against Portland's defense. Last year in the playoffs, he averaged over 20 points a night. Like, this guy is the kind of player who steps up when it matters and is going to be a great playoff performer over the course of the next few years. And that's the kind of guy that Brooklyn should be looking to keep and not use as, like, a trade asset going forward like I see him sometimes suggested as. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I think he's an important piece. My, The question I have with it, because you're right, you do need to have three ball handlers and, and three creators, but he's going to get the least of those touches, right? Which means sure. I feel like you're not going to get a lot of – you're not going to necessarily get to see as much of him as you would like in that sense where he can really take advantage of it. And I think that's that's the question mark for it. And, and I'm with you. If they can find a way to make it work, they got to do it, you know, and – we don't know who's going to coach the team next year, even though Jack Vaughn's done a phenomenal job. We'll have to see what offensive system they put in. But Kyrie's extremely ball dominant. 
You know, KD's extremely ball dominant. It's it's hard to fit that third ball handler with those two guys is in the way I look at it. And I think that's why it's kind of a case of like he's got a good contract. You might be able to get a lot for him and fill some other needs, you know, in terms of depth, in terms of, you know, getting a little more shooting, getting a little more defense and things like that. And that's not a shot at Levert because I'm with you. I think he's phenomenal. And, you know, he showcased that in, in the bubble. And I think it's just going to be a tough scenario for them to be able to maximize his skill set, you know, with those two guys. I just think that's where it gets tough. If it was, if they stayed with the younger core that they had going for a while when it was D'Angelo Russell and Spencer Dinwiddie and, and Levert, I feel like you, you'd be just fine. I feel like with the other two guys, it becomes he tends to get lost in that shuffle, and when he, that happens, his value is going to go down a bit. And I think now is the time to capitalize on it at maximum. The other thing about that that does make the idea of trading Karis LeVert interesting is the injury history. If he can go out and dominate in the playoffs this year and his stock is high around the league, uh, you would be significantly minimizing your injury risk uh, surrounding Kevin Durant, who's coming off of an Achilles injury, and Kyrie Irving, who has not exactly been the healthiest himself. So I'm not saying there's not a case for it. I totally understand it. And honestly, the more I think about the injury stuff, the more I think that there's a smart case for it. Because if you have, you know, all three of these guys being, I don't want to say injury prone in the case of Kevin Durant, but coming back from injury in the case of Kevin Durant, I think that there is a pretty reasonable case to minimize risk. Yeah, I mean it, it's it they they can it's a win-win for them either way I think. If they keep yeah. Levert, you know, they they have that good insurance policy. If they trade him and get a good return for him, then it, that's also a win for them. It's it's just kind of figuring out where they go. And you know, I I mean maybe they they choose to keep Levert and move Dinwiddie. I don't know what his I don't think his market's as as high as uh Levert's is. Yeah. But I think it's going to be a a decision is going to have to come down between those two guys and which one of those two will be able to fit best with Kyrie and, and KD on the court. Cause that look at it this way in crunch time, what are you doing? Yeah. You the know, thing if, I, the other thing I can't figure out is why Levert has become such a poor shooter from three. Uh, this is a guy that was a 40 plus three point shooter for each of his last three years at Michigan, uh, made 40.1% of his threes and 77% from the foul line over over 350 attempts from three in Michigan and over 265 free throw attempts. So like, I get that it's not an enormous sample size, but over the course of three years, like it's, it was pretty stable that he was between 40 and 44% from three. So I I don't know what happened to his jump shot to where, uh, because the jump shots there, it becomes a lot easier to fit him next to Kyrie and Kevin Durant. Right. And and that's the thing that they'll they'll have to figure out. The Nets are going to have to find out how they feel about it. Yeah, it's it's weird. But uh, I talked about Toronto on the last podcast, or maybe two podcasts ago. I can't remember now. With Blake Murphy, uh, I think Toronto's awesome. I, I don't know that like I really need to dive wildly in depth on Toronto again, just because I just did it. So, I'll do a, I'll do a, I'll just leave you with a quick tidbit on Toronto. The one concern I have about them is their half court offense. And that's yeah, when, that's, that's that's exactly what Blake said as well. Yeah, and that's that's it. Everything else about this team is is great, and the really the entire playoffs across the board, but especially in the East, it really comes out to which team you're matched up against. Because some teams will be able will be some teams will be able to take more advantage of that versus others, and and 
depending on who they run into and at that time, you know, it can result in them getting all the way to the finals or getting bounced in the second round. Yeah, I think that that's a good point as well. Let's go to Denver, Utah. Uh, do you think this series is going to be close? Yes, I think this one's going to be fun. This is Now we're getting into the fun stuff, Sam. I hope you're loosening it up and you're ready to go. Uh, I think this is where we're going to get really interesting things here. I think, you know, uh, Connolly leaving the bubble to attend to his son, the birth of his son, which is absolutely what he should do, you know, hurts the Jazz a little bit and, and does have me a little bit concerned. But I think this series is going to come down to, you know, who can take advantage of the other team's big man better. You, you know, if can Denver pull Gobert out of the paint with all the stuff that Jokic is able to do from the elbows, from the uh, three-point line, able to create for others and things like that. Will that force Gobert to have to play up and and leave his domain of the paint? And on the other end, can Utah take advantage of Jokic in the pick and roll? And not just Jokic, the entire Nuggets team. Like, they've done a very poor job in the bubble, Sam, rotating on the weak side. Like, they're just constantly late or, you know, they're, they're... over rotating to the point that it creates holes for the offense to take advantage of and I think those are going to be the questions that this series is going to hinge on is who can handle that better yeah no I agree with you on that and really (laughs) a weak side the weak side defense has been a problem for both of these teams because what I was going to say first was I think Utah's defense has been pretty bad uh, since basically early in the calendar year this year. Like, you look at their bubble defensive rating, they're down at 15th. Uh, This team was struggling defensively uh, basically from February onward here. And their perimeter defense uh, is just not very good. Boyan Bogdanovich is not a great defender, but he's a guy that can take on bigger guys and cause at least some resistance next to Royce O'Neal taking on their toughest assignments. So, man... This is going to be just all offense, I think. Oh, I mean, it it is going to be an offensive thing. And and that plays into Denver's hands better. I think they have the more explosive offense. You know, the the two guys Utah brought in to help, you know, pump up their offense. You know, uh, Boan Bogdanovich, who's not playing, obviously had wrist surgery and he's out. And Connolly is going to be out at least the first two games, maybe three games. You know, depending on when he returns and how the – quarantine plays out for him so I think that plays well for him and the other thing that bodes well for Denver is they're the more athletic team right like we Michael Porter Jr. obviously his athleticism and him exploding in the bubble and and showing what he can do has been awesome uh Grant is another guy you know when I look at the the Jazz you know their most athletic guy is Donovan Mitchell and then you know we go Rudy Gobert like I, I I I wonder where we're where we're going to find such explosive, you know, athleticism on that roster. And I think that's something that's going to also need to be able to, something we need to be able to keep an eye on and watch for it. But I think an offensive series ends up playing in the hands of Denver. I think so as well. The big question for me is how healthy is Denver? How healthy is Jamal Murray? How healthy is Gary Harris? How healthy is Will Barton? If those guys can come in and give them a lot, and I know that Jamal Murray was playing, right, and, like, was playing real minutes at the end. But, like, I don't know that he's 100%. I don't know that these guys are 100%. And I guess that that is where this entire thing gets interesting. Having said that, I just don't think Utah has been very good. 
Like I, I don't. I, I think that they've actually been one of the worst teams that I've seen in the bubble. Uh, if you look at their net rating, uh, it's negative 3.7. So the Lakers are 21st, and that is because their offense has just been kind of a nightmare, and they haven't taken it super seriously. Denver's is honestly worse than theirs was, by the way, because their defensive efficiency has been an abject disaster, as you said. They have a 121.7 defensive rating in the bubble. I mean, the, the hard <laughs> thing with Denver, too, though, is that, like, they're – they didn't even have five guys to practice, you know, at the beginning right. of the bubble, you know, like their whole scenario. And I think the Will Barton and Gary Harris stuff will show more in the second round if they get there uh, than in this round. Because I'm not sure if those guys are going to play this this uh, series or at least early on. And I think that's something that right now they can probably survive just because they've gotten, you know, great play out of Grant. They've gotten phenomenal play out of Porter I think it's just a matter of you know the next round is where, where it gets a little tougher for them is is the thing and and just I, I I'm careful Sam with all these teams in the bubble in the sense of like it was a weird scenario for all of them to to play through it and explore you know some teams weren't taking it as serious as others I think the Jazz were tanking to avoid playing Houston again and you know this is the matchup they wanted, and, and I think we'll find out why. I think another guy that has to play great for the Jazz, which we haven't talked about, is Joe Ingles. Yep. He's got to be a phenomenal playmaker in this one because, you know, without Connolly now, you know, it really falls on him because as good as Mitchell is, I don't know how great of a playmaker he is. This is one of those where, like, Ingles has got to average, like, eight or nine assists a series. Do we think Denver's defense is as bad as what it's shown so far this year? Like, in actuality, do we think that it is as bad as what it has shown in the seeding games. Yes, I do. I do to a degree. Um, I've all, I've never been as high on Denver's defense as everybody else, right? Like yeah. even in January and February, I think what Denver tends to do is they tend to defend really well for the first six to eight weeks of the season. And then after that drop off. And I think that's just the case now. And, you know, there's just so many things you can point to where, again, they're just not rotating. They're not over at the help side on the weak side, you know, uh, Jokic has been better on, on pick and roll defense, but he's still not very good, you know. And it's somebody that like you know you don't want to switch, but if you end up getting him switched on to guys, it's a problem. And I think that's the things that Denver is going to have to try to avoid. I just don't think I think their defense was overrated to begin with going into the bubble. So I'm not surprised it's bad. Uh, and, and I, I will say there are signs that it's better than what it's shown so far in the bubble. Like teams are shooting 45% from them from or against them from 3 in the bubble. Right. <laughs> like crazy. that's not going to hold, right? Like we can feel reasonably confident that teams are not going to shoot 45% against them from 3. Yeah, that's a that's kind of a luck thing, but it also right. just means like that they don't get out quick enough, you know, out of the the stuff when they do come to help it's like they're so late in helping that it never allows them to get back to to give those contests that they need to give at those three-point shots well yeah like everyone talks about like michael porter and his effort defensively he looks like he's playing hard but he misses a shit ton of rotations no no it's it's all over the place yeah they they shouldn't criticize his effort it's just he doesn't know what he's doing it's a chicken with his head cut off kind of thing you know he's not in early enough and he's not which makes him late to get out and I think that's the kind of thing because I he's shown improved effort just not it just hasn't translated translated to good defense yet what do you think of who wins this series because 
Prior to this conversation, I would have said Denver in like five because I just don't think Utah has been very good. But And I don't know that Utah has enough offensive firepower and specifically enough three-point shooting to take advantage of what Denver has been bad at in the bubble so far. But I don't know. The injury stuff does really worry me with Denver. I think this, to me, feels like uh, Denver in six games, but it's going to be like a tough six games. Right. Like, I don't feel like anybody's getting massively blown out. I feel like these are going to be a very tight six games, which also means it could flip the other way and Utah could win it. Um, so I'm just going narrowly saying it's it's Denver, but this is going to be a tight one, I think. Yeah, I think that you're right that it's going to be tight. I think that the games will be tight. I don't know that it's going to be like a hard series. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Physically, I don't know that this is going to be a, like, grinded-out series. But I think that it probably will be a – there are games that come down to, like, the final possession, you know? Yeah, that's what I think it is. And and that's where I think we'll we'll end up with – I think Denver will move on, but I just think it's going to be tight. The last thing that I'm going to ask you about with this series is Rudy Gobert against – Nikola Jokic. We haven't really talked about that matchup other than what you said at the front where you said that, you know, that's what everyone's going to have their eyes on. How do you see that playing out? Because it could go like a couple of different ways, I think, especially when Jokic is on offense. Uh, Jokic really could just like kind of string Rudy Gobert out and take him away from the basket in a very real way where Utah's defense will kind of collapse, I think. Yeah, like I don't think this is a series where Jokic gets a ton of post-ups. You know, Um, he he might get some and things like that. And he had some flashes. I mean, Rudy's still jumping on all those fakes that Jokic threw at him in the last time they played. But I just ultimately don't think this is a post-up series for Jokic because of that. I think, you know, you pull him out, and that opens up the floor for everybody else to drive. That opens up, you know, Jokic to ha- to do a DHO with Jamal Murray and allows him to get into the paint. And now it's a – if they switch, now it's Murray attacking uh, Gobert, which is 50-50 proposition. But then that's also you can kick it out and then get a – Jokic posted up on a small, which is a different scenario. But I think it's just a matter of if you can keep Rudy out of the paint, it'll open things up. But that means, you know, Jokic can't give up too much in terms of lobs on the pick and roll. You know, when that's that's just such a big part of Rudy's offense, right? When they run the pick and roll, he rolls to the rim. You know, he's got to be able to kind of stop the guard for a second to allow his guys to recover and get back to Rudy before that lob pass comes up. And that's, that's going to be the thing is it's just a battle of it's such two different offensive styles. Cause R- Rudy's not going to be able to pull Jokic out of the paint or anything like that. But Jokic isn't, you know, if Jokic is in drop coverage, like that's just going to open stuff up for the mid range for the guards that I think Utah will be able to take advantage of. And he's not much of a shot blocker that it would worry me if I was the Utah guard. So I just think it's a scenario of the two styles. Well, Denver tends to play flatter pick and roll coverage with Jokic. Like they tend not to like totally drop Mm -hmm. uh, Jokic into coverage, which puts a lot of pressure on their backside taggers, especially when playing someone like a Rudy Gobert. Right. Right. And I would imagine in particular that Utah is going to run a ton of roles with Gobert right at the direction that Michael Porter is. Because I'd imagine that the matchup is probably going to be Michael Porter guarding Royce O'Neal, you would think. Yeah. the Utah. So Utah, this game tips in 12 minutes now from when we start. <laughs> Utah is starting Jawan Morgan 
And I don't actually like that at all by Utah. I think that's pretty dumb, uh, to be honest. Uh, if I was them, I would start Mieoni and force Utah or force Michael Porter to guard a three-point threat and thus be in a situation where he has to make decisions on tagging responsibilities. Yeah, it's going to be – I I don't have a feel for who they should have started. I felt like they're, they could have gone several different ways. But I think the most important thing is that keeps Clarkson on the bench to be that offensive uh, bounce off the bench, you know, kind of give that little firepower there. So – it will be interesting to see how it plays out in the you – know, we're going to find out very soon, Sam, whether that was a smart decision or not. Yeah, I, I don't really like it, to be honest. Uh, we'll see. Maybe Quinn Snyder is smarter than I am. I would imagine he is, but <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll have to see. No offense, but he's got better hair than the both of us. Dude, it's bad, man. <laughs> the, hair, the hair is becoming more and more of an issue. Oh, man. <laughs> It's a struggle. I mean, Mo, you you still got some going up there. I mean, you're in good shape. I'm, I, I got I got a mop, but like it's uh it, it's going I'm, quickly. I'm holding on with every bit I have, Sam. <laughs> every <laughs> bit I got. Let's go to the other three six matchup, which is Boston and Philadelphia. I was really intrigued by this matchup if Ben Simmons was going to be able to play. I just don't know how they have enough wing depth to go up against what Boston is going to present to them offensively without Ben Simmons. Yeah, I mean, I just think they, they're they not going to be able to defend them, I think. It just really hurts them. You know, Boston's going to be able to have, you know, four different wing scorers that could put up 20 a night. Uh, and uh, when I say wing scorers, I also included Kemba in there, who's tiny but still you know it just presents a lot of problems for them but ultimately this is another thing of clash of styles right like can the Sixers really beat them up in the post with Embiid and that means Embiid has to do a better job of finding the passes off the double teams you know and he's been good at it in the bubble that's not something he's been historically good at this is one of those things where that's going to be a play a big part in this series you know when they put the ball in the post Celtics are going to double if they don't it's it's a bucket or a foul to be honest and that's not a anything against Tice it's just that's just how good Embiid is when he's locked in but if he can handle the double teams when they come and pick apart the the Celtics defense, that's going to matter. And that that really is important. But that also means those guys have to hit shots. And we've said it all year, right? Like the Sixers just don't have great shooting consistently. So it's going to be an interesting opportunity there. And then it's just a matter of like if you're – I don't know how to answer this. If you're the Sixers, I don't know if you start big with Horford and, and Embiid because that means Horford's probably guarding a, a Hayward or a Brown or something like that. And that's – that's kind of scary for me. Like, I just don't know what you do. This is one of those I'm really interested to see how they match up to start the game, because right? I just have no feel for it. I mean, I, I would imagine that they are going to start big, if only because that's what we've seen so right. far from them since Ben Simmons got hurt, right? Like, Al, Al Horford hasn't played, like, a wild amount of minutes, but they have started Shake Milton, Josh Richardson, Tobias Harris, Al Horford, and Joel Embiid uh, in those games with Ben Simmons has been out. So, I mean, like, do you, in that scenario, is the play then that you have Shake guarding Kemba Walker, Josh Richardson taking on Jason Tatum, Tobias Harris taking on Jalen Brown, and then yeah, I mean, this that's what you just did is exactly what I did yesterday. <laughs> As I went down the line, I was like, oh, you know, do you at that point do you wonder if you know? And there's been some talk of like. Brett Brown might sub out 
or, or might bring in might start Thibel, which I, it, it, I didn't know who he would sub out. But at that point, that's when I look at it and go, like, do you do that and, and sub out Horford? And at that point, you feel a little bit better because then you put, I think I put Thibel on, on Tatum and put uh, uh, Harris on, on Brown, and then that leaves Tyson and Bede. Here's my question. Do they go zone at all? Ah, gosh, I, I haven't even seen them really do it much. Yeah, you know, neither I, have I really, but so I'm just I don't like even kind know. of throwing out ideas. Yeah, I mean, like, if, if you stay big, I think that's a smart thing to do is try to go zone and, and hope those guys don't kill you from the outside. But, I mean, you know, it, I, I think everything's on the table here for the Sixers. I just I just worry that they may not have had enough time to really put one in. You know, yeah. it's, just a, it's, it's tough, man. Like, this is just a – this is a, the the challenge here that a lot of teams face when they play small ball. Like, this is a big team that's going to have to figure out, can they pound it enough inside in the paint to make them pay for going small? It's a question of who who flinches first. And and that's also why I'm not sure if you start small, because then it's a, a sign that you've already flinched before the first game was tipped. Right. Yeah, the 76ers played 169 possessions of zone defense this year, which is about uh, league average. Yeah, and it's just like I just don't know if they do it. I, right. I, I don't know. I think, you know, um, you're probably right, and they stick to their guns and stay big to start. Um, maybe they they might not start Shake and start Thibault instead of Shake and go real, you know, big like that. But I, I just, man, this one's going to bug me till tip-off because I'm not going to know. <laughs> I think you have to go big to start. The problem is, like, who are you going to start if you don't play big? Uh, are you going to play Thibel and get him in foul trouble potentially early? Because, like, Matisse is a very active defender, but that activity can often lead fouls. And I don't know that I'd want to do that. Do you start Furkan Korkmaz? I'd rather play big defensively than have Korkmaz <laughs> out there. No offense to Furkan, who's shot the shit out of the ball in the bubble. Like, <laughs> I think they have to play big just by nature of who they have. Yeah, I think so too. I I I just think it's going to be a a challenge. And then it's can they make can they do enough to make Boston have to go big? Yeah, I don't think they can. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be it's it's just it's just a you know, and this is why losing Ben Simmons is enormous, right? You know, it, it's it's just that ability because he can he can waffle through defensively on different line different sign uh, excuse me different assignments. And I think that's just the that's the thing where everybody talks about. I don't think it hurts them as much offensively, but it does really hurt them defensively and hurts their ability to just play different styles defensively because they don't yep. have them. Yeah, and you know we uh, you brought up the idea of Joel Embiid just killing uh, Boston inside. I would imagine that that probably will happen, right? Right. But they're essentially going to be trading twos for threes a lot of the time in this series. I think. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's that's kind of it. I think the ultimate thing for Boston that they got to worry about though is foul trouble. Yep. Because that's what Embiid can get you. You know, Embiid can get you in the bonus early, and that matters because then it's a free throw every time Tobias Harris gets fouled on a rebound. Every yep. time Marcus Smart gets too excited pressuring the ball up front, you know, thirty-seven feet away from the basket, and it's a foul. Like that's the area where I think the, that's their the, play. I think. Yeah, and, and and I think the Sixers have to win that free throw battle as well as having a dominant MB to really have a chance to counteract the fact that the Celtics are going to outshoot them from three. Let's go to the Western Conference 4-5 uh, game, which I think is the most interesting series out of any series that we're going to see because Russell Westbrook 
is seemingly going to miss at least a couple games in this series, and that's going to create very real, interesting matchup problems. I think that with Russell Westbrook, Houston wins this series not easily because Oklahoma City is going to make whoever they play work for it. But I do think that the matchups favor Houston pretty substantially because the way that uh, Oklahoma City has tended to guard it, to guard Russ throughout the season is by putting Shea on him. And Shea is just not ready for that matchup physically, as was shown throughout the course of the season. So without Russ, though, this gets real tricky real fast in terms of depth, in terms of matchups, in terms of just about everything for Houston. Yeah, I mean, this is... This is the problem for the Rockets in the sense of small ball is triggered based on the fact that Russ is so good. Like this is this is this is a la- created to unleash Russ, and I think that's the problem there. You know, it's without him, it then becomes easier to double team Harden. I mean, like you know, the the next pass is going to be Eric Gordon, who was injured for a while and is coming back, and you know, then he's got to find a way to attack, and he can do it, but not at the four set. Westbrook can do it you know it's Austin Rivers is another guy who's gonna they're gonna try to count on to to really help create on the four on three situations when teams double harden and I again I just don't think he can do it at the point that it's gonna matter to or it's gonna really hurt OKC and the other thing too is like PJ Tucker Robert Covington are both shooting below 30 percent from three you know right now it's those guys gotta hit shots because that's really the other thing that they need in this small ball because they're going to give up they're going to get out rebounded each game by 10 to 15 rebounds at least you know and their their math behind that is we're going to hit enough threes to make that make up for it and we're going to force a ton of turnovers I just don't think they're going to be able to force the turnovers against Chris Paul and the Thunder. Like, they do a good job of taking care of the ball. They don't foul much defensively. I think that's that's going to be the real issue. And I think this is going to be a series where, you know, Steven Adams has to have just be dominant on the glass across on both ends of the court. My big question is, what does Oklahoma City do in terms of ball screens offensively? Because if I'm Oklahoma City, what I want to do is I want to involve Robert Covington in every single ball screen, every single one. Now, if that means that he's guarding Danilo Gallinari and Gallinari is in the weak side corner and is waiting for a kick out uh, with Covington there, or if he's guarding Steven Adams, I would want Steven Adams in the dunker spot uh, if Covington is guarding him uh, or if um, – I'm sorry, I, w- I would want it the other way. I would want uh, Covington involved in every ball screen to where I would want Gallinari on, like, P.J. Tucker, uh, if it's the way that Houston matches up, going from three, or I would want Steven Adams on P.J. Tucker in the dunker spot looking for a dump off because Covington is so good rotating over from the weak side. He is not all that spectacular as like an on-ball defender. He's a good on-ball defender. He's not an elite on-ball defender against guards. I would want him involved in every single matchup there, and I would force uh, force Oklahoma City, or I would force uh, Houston to make really tough reads on the back end. Yeah, I think they've, first off, the Rockets have been pretty good defensively in the in the bubble in general and I think a lot of that is is the rotations you're talking about from Covington from Tucker you know I I kind of want to see them involve get James involved in a bunch of these pick and rolls because I just don't think he can guard in space you know I think he's a good post defender and things like that but I think he'll struggle as well you know coming off these 
these situations where he has to switch on to Chris Paul. He has to switch on Shea, who's much faster than him. I think those are the things that are going to be the the issues for the Rockets defensively is, you know, who do they involve in these pick and rolls and, and how they attack them. I love the idea of putting Adams in the dunker spot and, you know, okay, go ahead and rotate off Adams. You know, they'll just throw the lob up. He'll get it. You yep. know, they're, he ain't, he ain't got to worry about anybody's size. And, you know, the, the one guy that I play that has – I don't even say decent size, but like a little thickness besides Tucker is Jeff Green, and that's another guy that they can kind of attack as well on the the pick-and-roll switches and things like that. Like, there's going to be a lot of opportunities, I think, for the the Thunder to attack off the pick-and-roll. And, And, you know, the... The, the issues that I just have, again, with this Rockets team is, like, there's no other option for them to go big, you know, no. to add size to it. If they're getting beat up, they're just going to get beat up, you know. And, you know, it's it's they haven't played Tyson Chandler at all throughout all this. You're not just going to throw them out in the playoff series. So I think this is going to be – I think this is a very tough series. Before all before Russ, Russ got hurt, I would have probably said the Rockets win this in in six or seven. Now I think it's an absolute toss-up in seven games. Yeah, what Houston does offensively is going to be really interesting to me because Oklahoma City likes to play drop coverage with Steven Adams. The whole idea here for Houston is going to be to try to take such advantage of Steven Adams to where – he gets somewhat played off the floor. Oklahoma City won't like totally take him off. He'll still still play 22 to 26 minutes, but there's a big difference between t- Stephen Adams playing 26 minutes and Stephen Adams playing 35 minutes in a playoff right. series, right? Um, they do have Nerlens Noel coming off the bench. Nerlens has been efficient offensively and is obviously very switchable and makes things happen defensively. The problem is that you can't really trust them to always be in the right decision or always in the right position uh, making decisions defensively. So it's going to be really interesting to me to see how Houston tries to play this because prior to this, I would have just kind of expected a ton of ball screens with Russell Westbrook followed by uh, a ton of ball screens with James Harden where they use that initial ball screen not necessarily to take advantage in pick and roll, but to string out the opposing player and get them on an island in isolation because that's what they like to do. That's ultimately what their offense is. Russ likes to use his athleticism to get all the way to the basket in those scenarios, and James Harden likes to be able to just break down guys off the bounce, get a little bit of an advantage with his deceleration, and then pounce as a uh, accelerant athlete. So let me, I, got, I don't let me know, man. This. It's going to be tough. Let me ask you this question. How is Dort going to do against Harden? Because I think that's the, the other thing. Because he, he's got the strength. I don't know if he's got – much else behind that but again like i think that they're going to start dort on harden but how much of how much is lou dort going to be actually guarding harden whenever they decide to switch these ball screens because there's no way they're just going to play straight drop coverage and force dort to get over these ball screens because harden will murder them yeah no you can't can't they're going to have to switch on some level yeah i mean it's going to be i mean honestly though i think with the way it's kind of set up i almost would just show almost do it like the nuggets and kind of show flat and let Dort get over the top, you know, and, and risk it because it's not Russ that's getting the ball, you know, and, and going downhill after that. So, so I, let's do the thought exercise there. They show flat with Steven Adams probably, mm-hmm. right? You're probably involving yeah. Adams. And Adams has been a bit more mobile than what we've seen him previously uh, in the bubble, I think. Like typically Steven Adams does kind of break down over the course of a season, but getting that 
like three or four month break, I think really helped Adams kind of recover a little bit. And he looks great right now. But they show flat. You're hopefully asking someone like Covington to dive or short roll in that scenario or PJ Tucker to dive or short roll there. And you're forcing them to make decisions. That's probably a better play for Oklahoma city. Yeah. I I would think that that makes sense. Yeah. I think that's kind of maybe how you play. And I think part of it for Houston too, is I think they have to get hardened off the ball a little bit more. I've been saying this for years. Nobody listens to me, Sam. It's, you know, the, the, the normal story of my life, but um, you know, I think this is scenarios where there are times where they just need to, to counteract that. If you're Houston, let Harden work a little bit off ball, you know, and have him come off screens and get the ball in different spots to make it a little bit, you know, try to get door behind the play before Harden gets the ball. And then that allows him to really kind of take advantage and attack. So I just think there's going to, there's going to be a lot of chess involved in this one in terms of how these coaches go about setting their guys up. And then the one thing that ultimately scares me is, man, I'm, I'm worried about fatiguing Harden too early. Yeah. You know, in, in these first couple of games, he's going to have to do everything, you know, yeah, without Russ. And, and it's just the way it is. And, and this is something that, like, he can do it, but the, wh- what? how much gas does he have to expend to get there? You know, does he get – will he get tired in games five, six, and seven, you know, because he had to go all out in games one, two, and three? Yeah, I think that that's definitely a big question. We're going to see if the new and improved conditioned James Harden is a thing, as Kelly Iko reported uh, before the playoffs. Your uh, your podcasting partner over at yes, sir. Brody and the Beard. <laughs> Brody and the Beard, my man Kelly. <laughs> Love it. Uh, the last series here is going to be uh, Indiana against Miami. Fascinating series that I think is going to be kind of unlike most of the other playoff series. I expect this, like, we might see a couple games where teams win in the 90s in this one. It's <laughs> <laughs> definitely going to be interesting. Um, you know, I think ultimately, though, I think I just think the Heat got a little bit too much. For me, the Pacers, if they don't get anything off their first action, it's over. You know, they're, 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 there isn't much sophistication to their offense after that you know the the second or third options it's like okay now you just have to go one-on-one and create and good luck (laughs) what do we think of the tj warren versus jimmy butler of this all in the series man like i i just don't think much is gonna happen you know i think uh, that's the most fun part of the series for that's the best part of the series like we need something to happen i need there to be fireworks and explosion um you know, I think it, it it only happens if T.J. Warren can go off in the first game, right? Like, if he blows up in the first game, then he gets to talk some trash right to Jimmy. But if he kind of struggles like he did in the game against uh, Miami in the, the bubble, I think then then it's not as much of a uh, – it's not as much of a fun uh, story as we would like. But I also want to say this because there's one thing I did think in that Miami-Indiana game. I didn't read too much into it because I wasn't sure how much Indiana was really trying to show them everything. Right. I I think that's a good point. Yeah, you're playing that a little bit knowing that, like, hey, this is probably our playoff matchup. Let's not show them all the good stuff now. Let's let's save some for the playoffs. So I think that's going to be interesting. But ultimately, I just think, man, Miami's good. Plain and simple. I mean, you know, they can defend man-to-man. They can defend zone. I mean, they can throw out different things at you, I think. Ultimately, they can take you out of your system, and they're comfortable playing in the 90s. You know, I think so is yeah. Indiana, but I think you know they just got enough going on, and I think the the emergence of Duncan Robinson 
as a threat has been really big for them. You know, especially coming off dribble handoffs with Bam, it opens the door. Then coming off the bench, you have Goran Dragic, who's able to penetrate and create for everybody else as well. And we haven't even talked about Jimmy Butler, you know, just kind of taking going to work in the post and creating for others. He hasn't shot well this season, but ultimately I just think, like, he just has that ability to cause problems and, and muck things up for that, that team. So for me, I think, you know, Miami probably actually wins this one relatively easy. The big concern for me for Miami to play devil's advocate here is how does Miami defend at the point of attack if Malcolm Brogdon and Victor Oladipo are healthy and are totally good? Yeah, I mean, that's where it gets interesting because they're going to try to attack like, a, you know, the, the Duncan Robinsons on the team and things like that. It's, well, the, the bigger one to me is Kendrick Nunn because Kendrick Nunn's, Nunn is going to have to guard someone like Victor Oladipo, who's six right. foot four, the seven foot wingspan, or he's going to have to guard uh, Malcolm Brogdon, who yeah. is six six with a seven foot wingspan and is just one of the strongest guards in the league. Yeah, I think you know it, it comes down to, and, and this is the least exciting part of it, but switching, you know, and how well can you switch when they run the pick and rolls, or even pre-switching, you know, and and on top of that, it's having the help behind it, you, you know, having guys like Bam ready to rotate and everything like that. The one thing. You know, we we both know about Miami is they're going to be prepared. Right. You're not catching Eric Spolster off guard. Like you know, <laughs> no. we don't we don't we don't talk about him much as how great of a coach he is, but you, damn right he's going to be prepared. He's been probably working on this. You know, since they since it was clear that they were going to play Indiana. You know, he's probably like, all right, we're going to start putting this stuff together. So ultimately, I think it's just one of those things you're going to have to live with it and 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 hope your your help rotations can be there to back up. Kendrick Nunn in that scenario and at this point too it might not be a series that he plays a ton of minutes so if you're Indiana in the circumstance your starting lineup is something like Malcolm Brogdon Victor Oladipo TJ Warren I guess that my question is if I was Indiana would you start Aaron Holiday or would you start Doug McDermott or Justin Holiday that's a I think I would go bigger because I think it creates a much more difficult problem for Miami to solve if Miami is going to start both Tyler Hero and Kendrick Nunn. Right, right. No, I, I would try to go as big as possible if I was them, while still maintaining spacing. Yeah, I think so. I think I'd probably go McDermott. You know, and McDermott and, hasn't started a game this year, by the way. So like, I, I don't know that that's even going to be a possibility. But like, Doug McDermott, theoretically at least knows where to be on these off-screen coverages against Duncan Robinson, right? Yeah, I think it's just I, – I, I think I go with, with – it, it's hard because I just don't trust Nate McMillan to make a change off the bat, <laughs> you know. Oh, um, I think he's going to start Aaron Holiday. I do. But yeah. if I was them, I would go as big as possible and force Miami into tougher spots defensively. Even though Miami's defense is as good as it is – if you know that Miami is going to start Kendrick Nunn and Tyler Hero, which they might not, like they have enough options to where they don't have to necessarily do that, I would want to try and jump on them early with a big athletic lineup and then make them make adjustments. Yeah, I think that's probably the, the uh, a, a good idea to see how it goes. But that might be something you want to save, too, depending on how the series is going. You know, the, the challenge of coaching in the playoffs is when do you make adjustments and when do you go? And I think this is going to be uh, one maybe – Maybe you say for game two or three, let's see how our normal lineup does and and, and go from there. So um, it's going to be interesting, but ultimately I just think Miami's got the higher 
talent level. You know, it, it'd be different, I, I think, if they had Sabonis. But I just think ultimately Miami will be able to take advantage of them. Oh, if they had Sabonis, like, they can play big then. And that this yeah. becomes, like, a very real interesting series to me. Um, and I'm not even someone that, like, I said on the last podcast with Blake Murphy last week, like, I'm not even someone that's, like, a huge believer in the Sabonis-Turner front court. But in this series particularly, I think it would have caused – Miami some real issues yeah I think so too it would have been it it would have made things just a whole nother level you know I don't know who's going to win this series I think that there are legitimate schematic things that Indiana can do to cause Miami more issues than what you would anticipate given the talent levels in this series uh if TJ Warren continues to play as hot as he has and if Malcolm Brogdon and Victor Oladipo can be at 85 percent it becomes a very, very interesting series to me because I think that there are enough changes that Indiana can make. And there are enough changes that Miami can make. Like Miami can just decide to go big and like, you know, start Kendrick Nunn next to Andre Iguodala if they want to. Uh, and Jimmy Butler and uh, Duncan Robinson and Bam and play like big across the wings and small across the front quarter. If Derek Jones is healthy, um, you know, shout out Derek Jones. It looks like after that scary fall uh, on Friday that he's – pretty okay at least um and, and might be able to play in the first round here likely will play in the first round according to some reporting out there um Derek Jones starting him next to uh Bam Adebayo in the front court creates some interesting issues as well yeah it's um I mean they, they have a lot of ways they can play I, I don't think yeah. it's going to be that close so I'm I'm and, and maybe I'm sleeping on Indiana I'm sorry to my Indiana friends uh I just I just don't think it'll be as close as some people think yeah, I'll be honest. I think it's a six or seven game series. I agree with you that Miami wins, but I think it's actually pretty tight. I really do. Um, I get, I totally get what you're saying in terms of the talent levels and maybe Jimmy Butler decides, fuck this, I'm taking over. Like it's very possible that Jimmy just decides to do that and that he does it in a manner uh, that Indiana can't really solve because right. Malcolm Brogdon and Victor Oladipo aren't totally healthy and TJ Warren can't really guard him to be honest um it's very possible they just struggle with jimmy butler to where it's over but uh there is enough that indiana can do to where i'm intrigued by this series we're gonna we're gonna have to see how it goes sam i'm 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 curious we'll we'll see how it plays out let's uh let's get out of here mo tell the people where they can find your work tell the people about all the great podcasting stuff you've got going on at the athletic tell them what's going on in your life mo come on man well, uh, let's see. Um, now you can find me at uh, Modakil underscore NBA M O D A K H I L underscore NBA on Twitter. Uh, I'm gonna just be locked into the playoffs like everybody else, Sam. You could find my writings on Bleacher Report, and as you alluded to, I'm on Nerder She Road, part of the NBA show on the Athletic. We're uh, we're on the Fridays with uh, Seth Part now and uh, Dave Dufour. And uh, I do Brody and the Beard with Kelly Eco, where we go over the Rockets uh, past few games. So uh, that's where you can find me. Easiest thing to do, just follow me on Twitter, and from there you'll see everything I'm doing. Most legend, folks. Go follow him on Twitter. Uh, does some of the best uh, in-game video stuff that you'll find as well. Uh, if you're kind of wondering how something happened on the court, he's really an essential follow for you as the playoffs get going here. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Do everything you do to support the show. We'll be back later this week with a NBA Draft Lottery uh, review after it gets done. That's going to be something that actually happens. Uh, the NBA Draft Lottery is scheduled for Thursday, so we're going to have a fun time there. But until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.